Well, we will uh, resume our study of Titus chapter 2 and finish this chapter this morning. Uh, We have been in Titus chapter 2 for quite some time. It is a really practical chapter, and yet as we see in the final paragraph of this chapter, it is a very profound chapter theologically as well. The title of our sermon, the second part of it, is The Fount of All That Is Good. Over the last several months, we've been looking at all the practical instructions that the Apostle Paul delivers to the different segments within the church, calling upon them to encounter a cultural kind of Christianity, that which is truly defined as as good. Good deeds is how he would probably summarize what he instructed in verses 1 to verse 10 of Titus chapter 2. And now, as he gets into the next paragraph, it is a culmination of all that he has taught as he now expounds what is the fount of all these good deeds. Just by way of overview, again, as as we look more specifically at Titus chapter 2, we remember that beginning in verse 1, Paul begins with these words to Titus, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And then we see that he moves then in verses 2 to 10 with the content of this doctrine, very practical, a list of imperatives to various groups within the church. Then when we get into verses 11 to 14, we see the grounding of this doctrine as Paul explains why this is all possible. And then he ends the chapter in verse 15 with a a verse or a statement that echoes what he said in verse 1 where he says, to Titus, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority, let no one disregard you. So when we look at the chapter, there's a very interesting structure to it. We have really two bookends, one in verse 1 and, and one in verse 15. They, they start and then end this particular section. And in the middle, we find what Paul does with his, uh, his teaching here, and he, he deviates from his typical style in that usually we see Paul focus on the indicatives first. He first looks at what God has done, and then from that he draws the imperatives. But in this particular situation, in this letter to Titus on the island of Crete, he, just, he reverses that, not because he's reversing his logical understanding of things, but rather for the sake of the emphasis here, He starts off with the imperatives, but then grounds everything in the indicatives. And this is what we're looking at, verses 11 to 14, the indicatives that serve as the fount of all good works, all truly good works. Let's look at that paragraph, verses 11 to 14 of Titus chapter 2. Paul writes this, "...for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men." instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. As we went through that, uh, we've gone through part of this already, 
a couple of weeks ago we started, we noticed already in verse 11, you have the achievement of grace. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Secondly, you have the enablement of grace in verses 12 to 13. We'll, we'll look, well, summarize that in just a moment, but it, it is a put-off, put-on kind of enablement where because of what grace has achieved, there is now the ability to say no to sin and to say yes to godliness. And then we will focus most of our time This morning, in the third emphasis of this text, the mediator of grace found in verse 14. But just to review a little bit really quickly here, the achievement of grace. What has grace achieved? That's found in verse 11 when Paul says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Here's the the fundamental idea as Paul grounds all of his imperatives. He grounds them in this concept of the grace of God. And the grace of God is God's disposition to lavish on those who are utterly unworthy his blessings. Now understand this. It is not just that God puts it on those who do not have merit. It's not that he just puts blessing upon those who do not have merit, but God's grace is his lavishing of blessing upon those who have demerits. That's the nature of grace. And we define that grace that appeared as the manifestation of Christ Jesus. Paul does not mention the name yet, but the appearance of grace in Paul's mind, is that first advent, that historical advent of Christ Jesus when through the incarnation, the Son of God came. As John 1.14 says, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We saw His glory. The glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this grace bringing salvation... This grace has appeared bringing salvation, and and this emphasizes the efficacious nature of this grace. It is not merely an, an uh, an empty offer. This is a kind of appearance of grace that has power. It has the ability to save, even save those sinners like those on the island of Crete who are described in fully appropriate terms as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. God's grace can and does save them. And in that last statement, uh, and I'll come back to this a little bit in our study in, in a few moments, but Paul says in this first verse, he says, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Paul there is emphasizing all kinds of men. He has just dealt with the various categories within the church in verses 2 to verse 10, and now he says, God's grace has appeared to all these different categories. We'll come back to that, but the emphasis is there on on God's impartiality. He does not base the extension of his grace, the lavishing of his grace upon any kind of of, of partiality, of, of showing some kind of favor based on something he likes better in some than in others. No, this grace is impartial. It is based upon the gracious character of God himself. Secondly, we notice the enablement of grace, verses 12 to 13. Notice that it came instructing. 
that this grace not only brought salvation, not only does it save, but this grace comes also training and transforming. That grace is just as much involved in our sanctification as it is in our redemption, in our salvation. And this is Paul's emphasis here, especially in light of the previous imperatives. This grace comes instructing us, and it is instructing us to deny And that means to say no. To deny means to refuse to pay attention. And the things that we are taught to say no to by God's grace are defined as that which is ungodly, referring to an irreverence of thinking, as well as that which is described as worldly desire. That's godlessness in appetites, in how we handle those appetites. Grace teaches us to say no to those things. And then to say yes to other things, to three things in particular, sensibility, righteousness, and godliness. It comes teaching us how to live in a way that's sensible, where we have internally, with respect to ourselves, a controlled mind that leads to self-discipline. Grace comes teaching us how to live righteously. That has to do with our relationship to neighbors, how to be right and have just actions, to be fair. And then grace comes teaching us how to live godly. That's the vertical aspect of the relationship. It comes teaching us God-honoring conduct. But not only does grace teach us how to live that way, he continues in this section on the enablement of grace pointing toward the future because the present age in which we are taught by grace how to live this way is not the ultimate age. Immediately after Paul has stated that grace comes to teach us now in the here and now, grace doesn't just prepare us for eternity future, but it it teaches us how to live in this present context, in this fallen world as we await future glory, but certainly grace teaches us also how to live with a future orientation. This is not the ultimate age. Grace prepares us how. It prepares us by teaching us how to live in such a way that we are looking for something future, a blessed hope, and the appearing of glory. This active expectation is described in two ways, and they really refer to the same thing. Paul describes it as the blessed hope. It's a marvelous hope, not an empty one. That term for blessedness is a a word used to describe himself. He is the blessed God, 1 Timothy 1, 1 Timothy 6. God is the blessed God. He is the source of all that is sublime, all that is beautiful, And so he is the blessed God, and therefore the hope of his redemptive work in the future is called the blessed hope, but also it's described as the appearing of glory, the future, this future appearing that is marked by glory. And here's the interesting thing here, that Paul has described the advent of grace at the beginning of the verse, and now he's speaking of a future advent, and this he describes as glory. And these two words, grace and glory, wonderfully describe the two advents of Christ. The first, he comes as the one filled with grace. And then as we know, as we read the book of Revelation, as we have described for us that future coming of Christ, there Christ is described as the one who comes in glory. 
And this is what is so important for us in the present moment, for us to understand how to live our Christian lives. We live it both in light of what has already happened, what has happened historically in the incarnation, in the first coming of Christ, and that, that changes our lives. It totally changes our direction in life, radical transformation that comes as a result of that. But we then are not left to to meander through life. Instead, we have a true North Star, and that North Star is the second advent of Christ, and that gives us our direction. And that advent of Christ is described not as the coming of grace. That has already happened, but it is described as the coming of glory. And Paul then makes this statement, which we looked at briefly last time already, that this is the appearance of the glory of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ. I mentioned briefly last time that scholars struggle over this verse. It is a complex uh, phrase in the original, and some have said that there are two people mentioned here, both the great God, which is the Father, and then the Savior, which is Christ Jesus. But by looking at the grammar and by looking at the immediate context and the thrust of Titus as a whole, this is best understood as referring to just the person of Christ Jesus. What is amazing here is that the Apostle Paul trained in Judaism as he was under Gamaliel, that great, uh, that great rabbi of ancient Israelite history. He is, he is the one, Paul is the one, very familiar with all the commands in the Old Testament, not to blaspheme Yahweh or make him like anything else. And yet Paul is the one here who beautifully identifies Jesus Christ with a term that was reserved for Yahweh the great God. What's fascinating, I've shown this before, what's fascinating when you look at the the structure of Titus as, as, as a whole, you see three couplets. You can't miss it. There's one in every chapter. In the first chapter, it's very clearly displayed where you have the title Savior applied to God the Father and Savior in verse four of chapter one applied to Jesus Christ. Then in the final chapter, you have God, our Savior, a reference to the Father. And then in verse 6, Jesus Christ, our Savior, a reference to the Son, to Jesus Christ. And so you have this kind of relationship drawn. First, Savior is applied to the Father in chapter 1, verse 3. Then Savior is applied to the Son in verse 4. And then in chapter 3, verse 4, Savior is applied to the Father. And then in verse 6, Savior is applied to the Son. And so that leaves the question, what about the couplet that is in chapter 2? In verse 10, it's clear that it's God the Father who is described as the Savior. So what do you do then in verse 13, it follows the same structure, meaning that here in verse 13, you have another instance where the title Savior is applied to the Son in in one complete statement where Paul, in this wonderfully rich doctrinal text, is ascribing the blessedness and glory of Yahweh, of the one true God, to Jesus Christ himself. You can see here that they're inseparable and yet distinguishable. 
inseparable in terms of shared title, but distinguishable in terms of appearance and accomplishment. And now that brings us to verse 14, where we will spend the rest of our time, the mediator of grace. What a wonderful culmination to this long sentence. Verse 14 says this, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Paul has just mentioned Christ Jesus, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And and having mentioned the name now, Paul launches into a powerful expression of Jesus' accomplished work. In fact, this verse should be highlighted in your Bibles because it is one of the most profound, succinct summaries of what Christ has achieved for us. And what's interesting to note is that at the beginning of this sentence, back in verse 11, Paul began a little bit more abstractly. He said that grace has appeared. Now, he could have said that Christ Jesus has appeared, bringing salvation to all kinds of men, but he speaks a little bit more vaguely to put the emphasis on that that perfection of God, his grace. But now, by the end of this, this sentence, he's no longer speaking in more abstract terms. Now he's speaking very concretely about who he has in mind, and it is Christ Jesus. And as Paul concludes these remarks, He gives us a statement of fact about what Christ Jesus has done, and he's given us a summation of that purpose. And this is what makes this verse so important. Here in this verse, verse 14, we have a wonderful summation of the atonement of Christ, and we're going to see it in just five words, and then a wonderful summation of the purpose of that atonement. Let's Let's split up our thoughts between those two parts of this final verse. Let's look at it this way. The statement of fact can be defined or described as the mediator's action. Remember, we're talking about the mediator of grace here in verse 14. Let's look at the mediator's action, his deed, what he did. And it's found at the beginning of verse 14, five words five words as well in the original, five words in our English, and each one of them has profound theological implication. It begins, first of all, with this word who. This pronoun points us back to the very last words of the previous verse. It is a reference to Christ Jesus. That title and name, Christ the Anointed One, a messianic term. Jesus is his human name, that historical name which means Savior. And these two, 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 this title and this name comes together in such a way that, that, that this is what he represents by his name. It, it represents who he is, both King and Savior, Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, and Jesus the one who will save his people from their sins. Secondly, the verb gave. It's a very simple verb. We use the verb all the time, even in our everyday language, to give. 
But here, so much stands behind this verb. This simple verb refers to so much. It indicates here in this text, by, by the nature of the original language, it emphasizes that this was a, a completed voluntary act. It is Christ Jesus who gave. The same kind of language is found in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. The same verb is used there when Jesus himself says it in these words. He said, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In many ways, this verb is the synonym of the noun grace, as we see in this text to give. And that is his essence. It is to give. It speaks of a voluntary, completed act. Galatians 1 verse 4, Paul says it the same way there, same verb, who gave himself for our sins. 1 Timothy 2 verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom. And notice that's the third word there, emphasizing the self-sacrifice. Remember, this is the highest expression of love. There's no greater love than this, than one who gives his own life for another. He gave himself. He, he, he doesn't give something else. He doesn't give something that he creates and gives it away only to be able to recreate it again in an endless supply. He gives that which is most valuable. He gives himself. Fourthly, it is four. He gives himself. He who gave himself four. And that little preposition communicates so much. It emphasizes substitution, that which is done on another's behalf. With that little preposition comes all this theology about the atonement. It is substitutionary in nature in that what is done, the giving that is done, is done on behalf of those who cannot do anything, but from whom all is required. And then finally, the pronoun us, who gave himself for us. Little words, again, these are all simple words, and yet it communicates the the profound gospel here in these five simple words. All of these words appear all over the Bible, yet put in this arrangement, it makes us stand back in awe for us. Notice that Paul doesn't speak abstractly. He, he, he speaks it of himself and, and Titus included. He's speaking here not of all mankind universally, but he is speaking of believers specifically who gave himself for us. Now, this truth, as I said, is, is at the heart of at the heart of Christianity. If you do not have this, you do not have Christianity. You take away any of these elements and you do not have the gospel. You take away just one of these elements, you do not have Christianity. And this is where all false religions come to mock and deride Christianity. This is where the wisdom of man is made foolish in their rejection of this truth. Just give you some examples here. 
If you go to Rome, you can go into a museum there, and you can see what's called the Alexaminos Graffito. It's found on Palatine Hill, right by the Colosseum. It's a piece of ancient graffiti that was scratched into plaster in the wall of a room that was used to, to, to house slaves. And it dates back, what they can tell, it dates back to sometime in the second century. So very early. And shown in the graffiti is a picture of a young man who is worshiping a crucified donkey-headed figure. And the Greek inscription underneath reads, Alexaminos worships his God. Now, two things from this. First of all, notice already in the second century, the, the mockers of Christianity recognized that those who believed in the atonement, believed in the death of Christ on the cross and what it achieved, recognized that they were worshiping deity. In the second century, they, they recognized, the mockers of Christianity recognized that they, they related to Jesus Christ as divine. But because to them, death on the cross was so abhorrent, they, could, they, they would only reserve death on the cross for the worst of the criminals. They would never even have a bad criminal who was a Roman citizen crucified on the cross. It was so repulsive. Cicero said this, let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. And yet that's where Jesus died. And for paganism of the second century, it was an utter mockery that anything good could come from one crucified on a cross. Paganism scoffed at the idea. Islam does as well. In Islam, the Quran teaches that no, sh- no soul shall bear another's burden, completely denying the idea of substitution. Instead, it teaches that each man shall reap the fruits of his own deeds. And the death of Jesus was vehemently denied as having any kind of, any kind of salvific value. No, Islam strenuously, as a dogma, rejects the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ contained in those five words, who gave himself for us. Hinduism does the same thing. Mahatma Gandhi said this, quote, I could accept Jesus as a martyr, an embodiment of sacrifice and a divine teacher, but not as the perfect man ever born. His death on the cross was a great example to the world, but that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, my heart could not accept. Paganism rejects the atonement. Islam rejects the atonement. Hinduism rejects the atonement. So does Buddhism. An interesting episode in the life of Adoniram Judson, he had already been ministering in Myanmar for a good number of years and had not seen one Burmese convert. Uh, It was was a tremendously discouraging time, and yet yet Adoniram Judson pushed forward, and he was involved and dedicated to translating the whole of Scripture into the Burmese language, and he 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 had a language teacher 
who was helping him, who's a Burmese, but not a believer. And, and under the constant exposure of, of, of the Gospels to this language teacher, the language teacher developed an interest in Jesus and finally said to, to Adonai Judson, I, I want to be a follower of this Jesus. Now, again, most of us, having ministered in a place for years without seeing any single convert, we would have baptized him on the spot. But not Adonai Judson, who recognized that this is the, the clinch, this is the linchpin of Christianity. It's not whether you like Jesus, it's what do you do with his, his atonement. And so he asked him these questions because Buddhism rejects the atonement. He asked him, do you believe all that is contained in the book of St. Matthew that I have given you? In particular, do you believe that the Son of God died on a cross? You know, up to this point in the questioning, Adonai Judson had issued all these questions, and the teacher had answered all of them in the affirmative. But now it comes to this one about the cross, and the teacher responds this way, Ah, you have caught me now. I believe that he suffered death, but I cannot admit that he suffered the shameful death of the cross. And Adonai Judson turned him away and said, You are not a follower of Jesus Christ. He who is a follower of Jesus Christ submits himself to the book. In secularism as well, the atonement is ridiculed. A famous British philosopher, Sir Alfred Jules Eyer, said this. He said, out of all the religions of historical importance, Christianity may be the worst because it proclaims, quote, the allied doctrines of original sin and vicarious atonement, which are intellectually contemptible and morally outrageous. In the presentation of the gospel and in that watershed moment, it all comes down to those five words, who gave himself for us. And where a man or a woman stands on that issue is defining. What is rejected by man's logic in so many cases is that man, A, could ever be unable to pay for his, his sins because in all other religions there is always the promotion of the idea of merit, that God must accept us on the basis of our merit. Also rejected in this idea, is the, uh, rejected as far as the, the, the gospel is concerned, is the idea that God would ever come down in the form of a man. But J.I. Packer, in response to this, expresses well the beauty, the, the amazing truth of the atonement of Jesus Christ. He says in these words, he says, the notion which the phrase penal substitution expresses is that Jesus Christ, our Lord, moved by a love that was determined to do everything necessary to save us, endured and exhausted the destructive divine judgment for which we were otherwise inescapably destined, and so won us forgiveness, adoption, and glory. And it is that very message which has given forth so many of the greatest hymns, the greatest songs, In the history of mankind, nothing can compare to this message. John Murray, in his summation of vicarious substitutionary atonement, also 
brought this out well when he wrote this. It cannot be emphasized too strongly that God's love is the source, not the consequence of the atonement. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. If it is God's wrath which needed to be propitiated, it is God's love which did the propitiating. And as Paul emphasized these imperatives for how the Christian culture must look in a very dark world, he wanted the Cretans to understand, as he wants us to understand as well today, that this is where it all begins. When we think of our obedience, when we think of our sanctification, when we think of our zeal for good works, we must always remember that this is not done in order to make God love us. This is not done in order to gain acceptance before God. No, this is done because he has loved us and because he has sent his son for us and he already has paid the price. And that changes the motivation and the nature of our obedience dramatically. Now, what's the purpose of the mediator's act? The purpose. Now, after those five words at the beginning of Titus chapter 2, Paul gets into the purpose for why he gave himself. In fact, there's a twofold purpose that's there. Let's look at each one of them. If you look at the text, the first one that is, is mentioned there in Titus 2 is that he has given himself, first of all, to redeem us from every lawless deed. That verb to redeem is a very important verb. It means to liberate from a state of enslavement. It was used even in the world of the day and in, 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 uh, in the marketplace to refer to the purchase of slaves from enslavement to some other master. So it was, it was a common word that was understood, but here Paul takes it and he uses it in a spiritual sense to refer to the, the purchase that was made by Christ who gives himself in order to purchase us from a state of bondage, to purchase us from a state of condemnation. And, and that state from which we were purchased, our previous lawmaster, was, it was described here in verse 14 in this way, he purchased us, he, he, he gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed. And lawless deed here refers to any contempt toward or, or any violation of the law. And we all know in our lives there is countless, endless lists of, of times where we have shown contempt and violation to the law of God. But it is for that very reason that Christ gave himself to purchase us from the condemnation of our disobedience. And notice he adds that very important word there, every lawless deed. Not one is left unaccounted for. Every one. He gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed, both past, present, and future. From the lawless deeds which are more common and the, and the lawless deeds which are less to the lawless deeds that are more respectable and to those that are least respectable in the eyes of the world. Everyone has been dealt with through the giving of Christ, to purchase us back from the power of every single lawless deed, every single contempt you've ever shown, every single violation of the law, he has purchased you from its power and its condemnation. 
all that disobedience of every act, every thought, every motivation, every desire, his redemption was sufficient to cancel all of the condemnation those deeds and thoughts and desires possessed over you. Every single one. He came to give himself in order to redeem us from everyone. I like what Paul Tripp said. Jesus didn't merely purchase savability. He took names to the cross. And if you're in Christ, he took your name to the cross. This is reflected in Colossians 2, verses 13 to 14, where Paul there writes this, When you were dead in your transgressions and, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive. When you were dead, unable to do anything, he made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it away, having nailed it to the cross. And you understand, you remember that when a a thief or a criminal was crucified by the Romans on that despicable cross, above their head would be the sign of the charge. It would be written there. And although Pilate did his own charge when he wrote, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews, There is in a spiritual sense, in that act that was done historically, in that act of crucifixion as Jesus hung suffering there the most gruesome of deaths, as he endured the punishment of the Father, above his head was written every one of your sins ever committed, and he paid the price for them all. He didn't just take general ideas to the cross. He took your name. And all your sins that you would ever do, that would ever be an affront to God, and they were nailed above his head by the Father, and he gave himself to pay that price. But not only was the purpose of that act to redeem, but also to purify. Notice the second purpose that is given there. In the middle of verse 14, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. This verb, to purify, it's used sometimes to describe the, what Jesus did when he would heal uh, a sickness, a real physical ailment. Or it was used sometimes to refer to ritual cleansing, uh, what the Jews would go through in order to be able to worship within the temple, but here it's a figurative sense to refer to the removal of the defilement of sin. Here's the amazing idea here in these two purposes. You've got to catch this. In the first purpose, in the first purpose, God removes us from the slave block of sin. He redeems us. He removes us from that, that slave block. In this second purpose, he removes something from us, namely the defilement of our sin. He purifies us. In that moment, he purifies us. This is speaking of sanctification or cleansing, not as the process that we so often think of sanctification as, but by that moment in redemption when we are cleansed. We are cleansed from the defilement of sin. And he did this to make us 
able to enter his presence and to enjoy fellowship with him. Notice, he did this to purify something for himself. Christ both gives himself and he receives the reward. We are the reward he receives. And notice this is particularly expressed in what follows. It is that he purifies for himself, not some kind of disconnected group of individuals, but he purifies for himself a united people. A people. And they are described in beautiful language. It doesn't come through very well in our English, but that last phrase, for his own possession, refers to a special status. It refers to something that is treated as cherished, that is treated as a treasure. And now, now take it back, step back, and look at that whole, that, that, that whole clause there. He, he gave himself for us to purchase us from the slave block of slavery and to separate us from the dominion of sin. But now he also cleanses us to remove the defilement of sin from us to draw us near to himself so that he could cherish us, so that he would look on us through his own determination as precious, as a treasure, no longer unclean, no longer able to be in his presence because of that defilement, but he has removed the defilement and he welcomes the saved sinner in and says, you are free to come. So come to me and receive grace and mercy in the time of need. The throne room to those who have been saved is open. There is no more fear of that defilement. It has been removed and God through Christ treats us as a treasure. Now, just a note there about the people that Christ redeems. I want to go back to the very beginning of the sentence. Remember there in verse, in verse 11, uh, we, we looked at the fact that, that grace of, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And I said there that that isn't some universalism that's taught there, that salvation has now come to every single individual universally throughout all of human history, although some would seek to make that the meaning of the text. That's not what Paul is saying in context. Instead, as I said, in response to that, we have to remember the context here where Paul has just dealt with various groups within the church. Various categories, both men and women, young and old, and even socioeconomic status. Notice at the very end, he deals even with the slaves. He deals with the slaves. God has brought salvation to all kinds of men. There is an impartiality in God and that he's not a respecter of faces, not a respecter of persons based on, on, on sex or on social standing or on age. And what God has done then with all these different groups, which certainly within the Greco-Roman world were always at odds with one another, very much a a tiered system and ideas of social movement, trying to move up through classes and, and treating certain classes with favor and other classes as dirt. God takes from all these different classes and he redeems for himself one people. That's why when we see that in verse 11, that he has brought salvation to all kinds of men, the emphasis still there is on the different categories and the different kinds. 
and that God's grace is so impartial, it comes to all kinds, but then he doesn't leave them in all those distant categories. He brings them all together as a people for his own possession, one people, unified, a treasured, cherished people. We see that there's a little bit more to that verse right at the end. Paul now explains where this all heads in terms of his imperatives given in verses 1 to 10. They're zealous for the good deeds, proof that one has been delivered from sin's dominion and proof that one has had the defilement of sin removed is found in a totally new attitude toward good works. It's not that there's never any zeal for good works in an unsaved person. There can be amazing zeal for good works. And certainly when you looked at the philosophers of Paul's day, they had their zeal for good works. They taught much. They taught much about good works. You look at the Pharisees, the Judaizers. That's not it. But when God's grace comes and it releases the sinner from sin's dominion and it removes the defilement of sin's stain. There is now always a new attitude toward good works. Paul says it's described this way. He purifies for himself a people zealous for good works. This is where the, 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 the purpose of redemption aims, that even in this life, there will be a zeal. The, the word actually is, is a noun. Uh, he has purify the people for himself to be zealots, to be zealots for good deeds. It speaks of one who is earnestly committed to to some cause. And so we can translate it as an enthusiast or an an ardent uh, uh, loyalist, that this is what, what God's grace produces. When it has come to a man or a woman, changes their perspective, and now they're zealots. And certainly, indeed, in this world, especially one that is increasingly post-Christian and anti-Christian, there is, there is this, this slander that happens when they call us zealous, zealots and extremists, but there is a reality to it too. That compared to the darkness in this world, when we realize what God has done for us, the transformed life and all the blessings that we have been given from the most blessed God, we are enthusiasts. We're loyalists. We're zealots for all that reflects the character of God. And certainly, this is described as good deeds. We're zealots for good deeds. The kind of good deeds in particular that were described in, 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 to the older men and the older women and the younger women and the, older, or, and the younger men and the slaves, these are the good deeds described in verses 2 to 10. They're the right response to God's grace revealed and this is certainly part of Paul's larger teaching on the importance of good deeds for Christians. Ephesians 2 verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The same idea expressed there. Indeed, in verses 8 to 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no man must boast. But don't forget verse 10, that there's a reason why grace appears. And that reason why grace appears is to create zealots for good works. Colossians 1 verse 10, Paul is describing the gospel and then he launches out in, in these words in Colossians 1 10, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects 
aspects, bringing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Second Thessalonians two sixteen to seventeen, the benediction that is inserted there between chapters two and three. Paul says this: Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. On and on and on, Paul teaches that when grace comes, it doesn't leave the sinner the same. He not only undergoes a a radical transformation in terms of his standing before God, but also a radical transformation of his heart that now enables him to do what he could never do in the first place, and that was to produce a good deed pleasing to God. But we must always make sure that we understand that the good deeds that we now do to please God is not to please him for his love. It's not to please him in order to get from him grace. Those have already been given. And they will never wax or wane. They are there in Christ for us for eternity. But we become zealous for good deeds and produce every one of them for his glory because he is the one who works within us to reflect that glory. One writer puts it this way in terms of what Paul is doing here and and founding his instruction, his imperatives within these indicatives of what Christ has done. He said this, Horatius Benar, he said, the secret of a believer's holy walk is his continual recurrence to the blood of the surety and his daily communion with the crucified and risen Lord. All divine life and all precious fruits of it pardon, peace, and holiness spring from the cross. All fancied sanctification which does not arise holy from the blood of the cross is nothing better than Pharisaism. If we would be holy, we must get to the cross and dwell there. Else, notwithstanding all our labor, diligence, fasting, prayer, and good works, we shall be yet void of real sanctification, destitute of those humble, gracious tempers which accompany a clear view of the cross. Now, in pulling this all together, Paul then ends this section, giving Titus a final exhortation before he moves on to some more, and it only gets better in chapter 3. But he says this as he gives Titus a breath. He says these things, speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Not the pagans, Not the Muslims, not the Hindus, not the Buddhists, not the secularists. Let no one disregard you. Teach these things since your life depends on it. And drawing it to a conclusion, let me ask you a couple of questions for you to ponder over the coming days. First of all, are you overwhelmed by the price paid for your redemption and cleansing. You are overwhelmed by it. If it's no big deal to you, if it really doesn't move you, it's very possible you have never embraced it truly. 
But if you have, you know, when you think of it, the great price that was paid and your utter, absolute unworthiness of it. We even sang the words from Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? We must ask that question repeatedly. It brings us humility and it reminds us that not even our best effort today, even after years of walking with Christ, could ever atone for our sin. It all comes back to this and it must overwhelm us. And when it does, it brings true humility. It brings us to a recognition that we are despicable sinners saved by a majestic, gracious God. What can we say? Secondly, is your motivation for good deeds? What you do today, the study, the ministry, the service, is your motivation for good deeds the glory and satisfaction of the Lord who has purchased you and cleansed you to make you part of this people that he will treasure? Is your motivation for your good deeds the glory and satisfaction of the Lord, the one who purchased you, that that you see that he is worthy of the full reward of his labor, evidenced in your life even today? That that it's, it's not just that you live your life in some kind of pure way and pursue holiness because you, you, you want to feel good about it. But ultimately, you're driven that Christ is worthy of this. He purchased my redemption. He purchased me off the slave block. Uh, he, he gave me this, this cleansing. He removed sin's stain from me. And he is worthy then of my obedience because this is just the, the, the part of, of, of all that he's doing in my life. Are you motivated by that? Finally, in light of what Christ has done for you, are you really zealous for obedience? Not zealous to make a name for yourself. Not zealous merely because you want to feel good about what you've done. You are zealous because of what Christ has done. Examine your life. And if you cannot answer those questions in a way that reflects the truth of Titus 2, 11 through 14... I encourage you to, to talk with, with um, someone you know who is mature in Christ or talk with Pastor Rodney or with me and we'll be delighted to share with you how this can be real in your life. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this truth. Where would we be without it? We thank you for how it humbles us, reminds us of the great price your son paid in order to do this for us. It reminds us of how great you are, how glorious and gracious and powerful. And in coming to that realization of of our nothingness and your grace and glory, we find the most sublime satisfaction to make much of you and what you've done 
and to live that in our lives. I pray for each one here that having heard this, if these truths are not real for them, I pray you'd convict them. I pray that they would go from here under a great burden, a great cloud of uncertainty and discomfort. But as you put your hand upon them, your hand of conviction, I pray that also you would make the invitation so very evident to flee to Christ who gave himself as the solution. And Father, as you press these truths deeper within us, may you create an ever-growing zeal to do good works, to fulfill what has been communicated to us in chapter 2 of Titus, but so much more beyond this, that we really would be defined by you and by the world around us as zealots for works that glorify our Redeemer. We pray this in, in his name. Amen.